welcome, my brother. Thank you, Harlan, for having me. Yeah, and uh, I just want to do your, you know, a little background about who you are. And uh, Stu Zakim is the president of Bridge Strategic Communications, a professional with senior level experience in the entertainment, media, and cannabis sectors. Stu has worked for some of the best known brands in those industries. He has been a communication advisors to media leaders like Jan Wenner at Rolling Stone, Bonnie Fuller at Us Weekly, Christy Hefner at Playboy, and David Pecker, uh, who's no longer with American Media, but at the time, which a lot of people don't know that at the time it was uh, the National Enquirer, right? Wasn't well, that was one of the titles they owned, but yeah, that was the had, one that was had, the most had, notorious. And they had fitness titles and stuff yeah like health that. and fitness titles as well right yeah and so uh you've had uh, senior positions at columbia pictures universal pictures showtime network and if you watch cable news my audience um yeah. he's uh you've probably seen him as a contributor to cnn and msnbc on the media issues uh he's been an advocate for cannabis legislation for many years. And to that, he represents clients like Happy Monkey, CryoCure, uh, the Marijuana Business Association. He's been recognized by his peers as one of the top 100 people in the cable industry. And he also serves on the board of directors of, uh, of the Publicity Club of New York. And if you haven't caught on to one of my underlying threads of my podcast, one of them is to reach out and have my friends be guests who have compelling stories to tell. And still, you do have compelling stories to tell. And you're one of those I, people. I do. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> so um, for a lot of different reasons, things we shared and things we haven't shared. And, <laughs> and, and as many people know um, or don't know, we've been friends since childhood. And so when I asked right. you, uh, everybody, what uh, he wanted to talk about, his answer was immediate and spot on. And he said, let's talk about life, losses, wins, and what really counts. Welcome, Stu Zakem. Thank you, Har. As I said, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, to share our mutual wisdom with the world. Yes, as we pontificate in our dota. <laughs> yes. So let's talk about life. So, you know, when you said that, I was like, my head exploded when you, when you said, uh, uh, life losses, wins, and what really counts. So let's start with number one. T tell me about uh, the wins. Or well, you know, when you look at personal and business, right? Those are the right. two worlds in which we live. Sure. So obviously the personal wins are, you know, having children. Right. Uh, that go on to be, you know, successful. Um, and then you see their families grow, you know, in time, and then my nuclear family beyond that as well. So those are all win on the personal side, um, being healthy, being in a relatively pretty good shape for people our age, yes. staying active. And then not, you know, I, I, I feel good. I'm, you know, well, you've been very lucky. You've been very lucky. Like I have been lucky. You have a, you know, we, we ran in the same circles and we ran in different circles, right? As right. we yeah. were growing up, but you were really fortunate. Like I've been very fortunate is that you've stayed in contact with, you know, childhood friends that, that have, you know, lasted 15, 60 years. That's, that's a huge win in my book, you know? Well, without a doubt, you know, a personal roots are really important and to have shared experiences with people, like we did as we went through Hebrew school and there weren't really too many groups in Wayne at that time where we would be exposed to different 
uh, diverse audiences than that. But um, you know, we were, dude, we were a tribe. We were the we were the children we were of the tribe. tribe. And it was a bond, I have to say. You know, we did survive the, you know, violent, virulent anti-Semitism that existed in Wayne as we were growing up. Right. I think it made us all very sensitive towards those issues. Very much um, so. And, you know, my I was on the Wayne Hillside, and the hillside was much more uh, anti-Semitic than the Valley oh, side. Give me a break. You want to talk about anti-Semitism? <laughs> Let me tell you about uh, anti-Semitism. Well, you know, the you got the Valley side had all the all the Jewish kids, really. I had but very Pakanak Lake. We couldn't, we, could, we, we couldn't live in Pakanak Lake. I know. And I they know, didn't go to hills, dude. No, they went to they went to Pines Lake, which uh did start <laughs> to open up. But nevertheless, you know, um, but, you know, that was a life influencing uh, period. It's such a shaping event. And I won't go in. I, I, I know a lot of people don't understand what we're talking about, but that's OK. Even though, you know, you asked me before, did I look up stuff about podcasting and did I study it? Yeah. One of those things who say says no inside baseball. But, you know, sometimes I don't care. So there, mm-hmm. for the people that are listening now, I think it's important to know there were events in our, our childhood that um, are historical events. And we saw the, the ugly side of prejudice to kids that we knew, their parents, ourselves. I mean, just in your own life, your brother becomes a uh, very active... Civil rights an, leader. Yeah. yeah, an anti-defamation league. So, you know, it's... It's hard for people to understand. Some people understand it. Some people don't. That when you're the receiver of that, you you have two choices. You can be like the other guy and hate everybody, or you can say, "Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna do whatever I can in the course of my life to not not let that change the way that I approach people." But I still, you know, I still have a John Desai. So here is where Stu and I jump into his work life, the people he advised, and the interesting stories that he could tell. Work with tastemakers and influential people and popular influence over the last 60 years. Playboy and Rolling Stone have to be one of the more influential albums. Oh, without a doubt. Um, no, no, well, let's start with Playboy. Yeah, which preceded Rolling Stone's launch. Playboy revolutionized a, a different generation. Yeah, um, made sex okay to talk about. Okay, um, and this is because of the vision of Hugh Hefner, who obviously knew that men liked women and wanted yeah. to know more about women. And you know, by the way, the hopefully this isn't a revelation for my audience. Uh, yeah, I am sure that's not. <laughs> At the same time, I would tell your audience they're watching this. Uh, 10 part series on A&E about the yeah. secrets of Playboy. Yeah, it's all it's all propaganda. I mean, it's it's definitely not based on fact because. Hef, oh, and I was going to ask and, you about I was going to ask you about what it was like to be in the grotto in L.A. Uh, I wouldn't put my foot in there. Are you kidding? <laughs> I had lunch with him one on one at the grotto. Yeah. Like, but on a table, you know, like yeah. a, like a outside furniture table. There's no way I was ever going in that pool. I don't care how clean they told me it was. Uh-uh. It's no, clean, no, still. No. 
No, please, yeah. Stu, go ahead. Yeah, sure. Veronica, get Stu a towel. To that point, Har, uh, a Playboy, in fact, Christy Hefner, who was Hef's daughter, um, was zero tolerant about any of the company executives uh, playing with the uh, with the uh, other employees. Okay, and that's good. And that's good to know. Um, yeah, I mean, not that everyone abided by those rules. Certainly, right. it was the, when I was there, it was still the heyday of, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Right. So, you know, that will all lead to, you know, behavior things that we know happens when people consume mass quantities of drugs. Sure. Um, but that said, um, have clearly uh, not only about First Amendment, a major because without the First Amendment, Playboy would have never been allowed to be published. Right. So he created a, a nonprofit uh, dealing with First Amendment issues that still exists. Secondly, he was the pro uh, the first major donor to Normal which I don't know if your audience knows what normal is. They might, it's they the might national, not. It's the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. It is the long, long, oldest advocacy group in the cannabis space. They are trailblazers. They have been responsible for a lot of the things that we take for granted now okay. and that have funded it. You know, spoke to his his belief in obviously the lifestyle that he was you know supporting with Playboy brand, but he put his money where his mouth was, you know, and it wasn't only just for the pictures, you know. Let's be real; uh, some of the authors oh. that published what? in Playboy are who's who of literary superstars, right? And there was and no the topic. Too. You know, I, I only I only read it for the for the interviews. Sure. Well, mm -hmm. well, that's good because those interviews actually ended up being more newsworthy than uh, the Playmate spreads were, the centerfolds or whatever, because there were no holes barred in those interviews. And it was a great get to be a Playboy interview. Yeah. You know, like they also Car had Carter's, Carter's Jimmy interview. Carter was notorious for lusting his heart. Every, you know, there's countless figures who were part of that. And let's not talk about the adult entertainment lifestyle that Playboy was responsible for creating. And I'm talking about nudity. I'm talking about a, a lifestyle where women could be women, men could be men. And there was, you know, less, was less shame, less shame. And, you know, the Playboy Club clearly advocated and pretty much was a poster child for that kind of lifestyle that inspired James Bond and all, you know, the, uh, those kind of movies that happened after that right. television. And he was also a leader in, in, in integration. You know, if we, we, we grew up watching Playboy after dark, I know I did. And you know, did. he would have, he had Sammy Davis Jr. On, he had Miles Davis. He had, you know, you name talented black artists from that time who were not getting their shot on the Ed Sullivan show and the more traditional outlets, Playboy broke the ceiling. And then you look at Jan Wenner, who not only um, made rock journalism a legitimate product um, magazine, it wasn't just about rock and roll. It was about the rock and roll generation and how. And I don't, mean, I don't mean to be a contrarian, but Banks had a little bit to do with that too. He did. And uh, but banks didn't make it work 
the way True. Leonard did. Yes, and I will, I will, I will give you that. I mean, Lester Bangs. I mean, for those who've seen uh, almost. almost famous, almost famous. You know, he certainly is a legend as well. And uh, his publication, you know, all this stuff was very crucial at that moment. Rolling Stone was a tabloid, right? A newspaper tabloid, and John Lennon on the first cover in November of 1967. But what Winter did that uh, Bangs and other journalists, it wasn't, you know, this wasn't 16 magazine, right? This wasn't, you know, those teen books. Oh, this so was, legitimate, it was a, a legitimate uh, journalistic pursuit. Correct. Happened to focus on what mattered to the, well, the baby boom generation at the yeah. time when they were get, moving into adulthood. And one of the interesting things was, you know, creating a new form of journalism, which is what he's largely responsible for by uh, long form journalism. Rolling Stone used to be renowned for like, you know, stories that went on for thousands of words. Right. Hunter, Hunter. You know, you have a group of writers who went on to become superstars that incubated, that worked at Rolling Stone. In fact, I just saw this morning that P.J. O'Rourke passed away. Yeah, I was going to ask you, did you know him? I knew P.J. Uh, he, when I was at Rolling Stone the first time in the 80s, um, it was in his prime, really, at the magazine. Oh, oh he was, and, I always enjoyed yeah. listening to him and reading him. I, he was a really um, engaging guy. We yeah. had different points of views on a lot of things, especially Mideast. Um, but um, I, I, you know, I would pinch myself that I was even having a conversation with PJ O'Rourke or a lot of the other writers, Hunter Thompson, you know, those, these legendary figures what was, that, what was he know, like? just like you would think he was, um, he was wild and zany, you know, Stu, um, let's just go up on the roof and, uh, and just blow this thing and then have another conversation in a little while. <laughs> it's anything well, like know, that. It's Did anything like that ever happen? Well, so in the, the New York offices of Rolling Stone at in the 80s was located on Fifth Avenue and 58th Street. And okay. we had multiple floors overlooking Central Park. And one of the floors had an outdoor um, deck. You know, it was our sure. party space. Legitimate party space. Advertisers, you know, we'd have events and advertisers would come and they'd come to the view the editorial teams, you know, to get, they would be tripping or smoke, you know, whatever. And they'd go up there and they'd like vegetate. Sometimes you'd worry they'd fall over the edge, but, oh. um, but that was, um, that was, a, I mean, once again, think about the irony of Rolling Stones offices being located in probably the most expensive block of real estate short of Rodeo drive, maybe more so, um, in the US, right? Yeah. Um, and that was part of their transition from, you know, a, a tabloid to a real magazine. Uh, but what always stood out was, you know, certainly the coverage of rock and roll, which needed that kind of analysis at that time. Because if you remember, the albums were all connected, you know, they weren't random songs placed as an, on, a, on a record, they were theme driven yeah. and they had a lot of messages and at a time where political upheaval and uh against the war and other things were important and then you have the patty Hearst 
story they broke. I mean, there's tons. And for me, working for Jan Wenner was was a, it was a privilege, even though I got fired twice by him. It, it was not, you know, it was because that's who he is. And when you work for these iconic people, yeah, um, you know, they go, you know, when you're and, and my role as a counselor in in, on, in PR, yeah, they they you're constantly engaged with them, and uh-huh. a lot of times. I'll tell them no. That's not a good idea, and there. And I don't say it in a obnoxious way, right. but I say it in, just say it. And a lot of them are not used to being told no, and, and so it really. But you wouldn't be become, doing your fiduciary responsibility if you knew it, something correct. and didn't correct. and didn't advise them of that. I mean, they they're paying, they're, they're, where, they're, they're paying you to be to, you know truth to power, right? Correct. But also, when you, even with that said. You know, after a while, their egos bruise easily. I had that at Showtime as well. You know, I was uh, where I had a corp com, and it was right after CBS took over Showtime. Yeah. So I was the liaison between CBS and Showtime. Yeah. And the CBS, the Showtime CEO, uh, Matt Blank, really nice man, now working at uh, AMC, I believe, loved being in the media not just the trades he loved being in Liz Smith and page six and he was because he was the CEO of Showtime and that's when she, but once CBS took over I was told specifically that there's only one person who gets attention at CBS and his name is Les Moonves okay and, and so I have of course had to deliver that message to Mel uh, to Matt Blank and he, of course, had a meltdown and, you know, never want, I was always say, no, you can't do that. No, you can't have your picture taken with this one. No, you can't do that. You know, and trying to protect him from his boss, who was notoriously vengeful when you didn't play by his rules. But his, you know, so egos, if there's a constant through all of my career, is yeah. that I have a pretty good way to handle egos okay. i'm good with e- with with selfish narcissistic you, people you, who just you're, think you're not a, you're not worried about the blowback of using language like that of, of what language selfish and narcissistic and that, that's not uh is that not a me too world those are accurate terms for certain personality types no i wasn't thinking been, by the way Stu, i wasn't thinking about me too i was thinking about uh, vengefulness of people who are in positions of of, of authority, not authority or power, whatever you know. They're, they're, well, you know, look at the celebrities. Let's you know, we I worked with a lot of celebrities in my career. Okay, and, and they all have egos. Um, a lot, you know, a good percentage are incredibly nice people, normal people who just happen to be rich because they're actors or directors right. or producers or singers. Um, and that and they appreciate, they understand the function I play, my what my, my role is. They, and that's great when you work with people who are, are kind of new to the money. Yeah, and the power that that brings them, and and the perks that come along with it, and the the sycophants and the entourages, right? It, it be it's actually less attractive, and that's one reason I'm no longer doing that. Because what I enjoy doing, it whether it be in uh, media, entertainment, and especially now in cannabis, 
is using my skills to influence public opinion. And how do I influence public opinion is through the media. Uh-huh. Um, even in this day of peer-to-peer co- communication like we're having now, where we're kind of bypassing filters um, by putting this podcast on or a TikTok or a Facebook Live. Right. Or- this is long-form version of those same things. Correct. Correct. And, and that is really great because everybody can become a personality and express their views in ways they didn't have before. But what, what you find is if man, the, your client or management, whatever it is, has to let their egos go by the wayside and do what's best for the organization if they want to succeed. And to your point, yes, it is my job in a lot of ways to point those things out. And, you know, whether it was actors or with CEOs, um, I am kind of direct. Uh, they know that sometimes they get bruised by it. Yeah. Um, but in, and I'm, there may be softer ways to communicate sometimes. But um, when they don't listen until you say, look, man, this sucks, <laughs> you know, mm. and then it finally breaks through. But it's 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 really tough, you know. So let's talk um, about cannabis. Let's talk about let's talk about cannabis today, okay? Okay. I made a comment in in a previous episode. I I made a point that our generation on the back of our baseball card got weed legalized, but we lost democracy. I wanted to get your thoughts about that since you've been so. involved in, in the cannabis industry. Do you, do you see that there could be something there about having an eye on this ball when something else is going on over here? What well, you, you know, I, I think, first of all, that if cannabis was legal on the national level, yeah, that there would not be this kind of tension in the country. That if people had a a safe way to let go of some of the anger that is percolating under the, the surface, yeah, um, we would be in a much better position. Okay, you know, uh, not that everyone in since there are many different ways to consume cannabis, right. I'm a gummy man. I'm a gummy man myself. Okay, so gummies, people like gummies, edibles. There's all kinds of things that exist. And, and what happens when you have a group of people together who have, you know, used cannabis in some form, there's conversation, there's music, and there's no fighting. Unlike when you get into a, a situations with alcohol. And, and so that that's one thing. Um, I am really passionate about and, and try and show that it's a alter- safer alternative. Uh, no one's yeah. ever died of an overdose of cannabis. Yeah. Let's, then you look at the, you know, the opiate work situation. As you know, I lost a child to addiction. And had he had access to medical cannabis at that time for the same things he was diagnosed opiates for, yeah. I believe he'd probably still be alive. I think that there's a good a good piece of that because they've seen with veterans who have been put on opiates and athletes who have been put on opiates, it's completely disrupted their lives. 
it, it takes over it is probably you know now we have uh fennel in, in the mix which is even more dangerous fentanyl rather but why have a nation full of addicts and zombies i mean if you watch this spe- uh series on hulu about yeah. it with michael keaton i forget the name of the show but it was amazing uh it showed seriously like dope, dope sick dope sick mm-hmm. Uh, about the impact that opiates have. There's no boundaries. You could be rich, poor, a doctor, a janitor, yeah. doesn't matter. And, and we're, as cannabis does not have that negative influence. In fact, cannabis, not, as opposed to being a gateway drug into the other drugs, research now shows it's a gateway drug out of okay. opiate addiction out of a lot of other problems. So as a communicator, I cherry pick my clients, number one, because yeah. we have to be in sync on what our views are. I, I'm lucky at this point in my career that I can you know, have that luxury where I just, you know, like not ambulance chasing, I can really right. pick and choose. And um, a large part of my clients are in the social equity world, which is a very hot topic in cannabis legalization because right now we're looking at a situation in any state that is legal, whether it's medical or adult use, of the people who kind of broke the backs, you know, trailblazed, did all the homework, what is now called the legacy industry used to be called the black market. The black being a negative word has been replaced now with legacy which actually is a better way to present what these people do because they have legacy knowledge, not just of cultivation and all these other things, but the, it's a culture. And it's this is a culture. Distribution. <clears throat> but, you know, um, had a, you know, the, the guys on the, in the hood who were selling nickel and dime bags on the street, you know, um, they, that's distribution. They had plenty of that. So now they are being not that they're, they're not being denied access, but they're having a harder time breaking into the legal side. It's what we call legacy to legal. It's a major topic um, because the legacy people should who went to jail at a much higher rate yes. than the white the legal market, the white or white people anyway for a joint, you know, during the Rockefeller years, during the years when Giuliani was mayor. And, you know, Bloomberg, the stop and frisk, targeted people of black and brown color, did not target white Jewish guys. I could walk down the street and smoke a joint or with a black guy, a cop would tell me, please, sir, put that out. And they'd probably bust a black guy. That can't happen anymore in New York. But for the most part, in, in a lot of places, it can't happen, period. Right. But the there problem is that they're not getting access to the kind of money one needs to get into the cannabis industry so how do they how do they fix that to make it a more equitable well, uh, transition from the legacy market to the to the well you market? legislate it you legislate it you build it into the legislation whereby like in in new jersey 25 percent of the adult use licenses have to be given to minorities now minorities include 
women, veterans, African-American, Latino, Asian, you know, just going down the list. Yeah. Um, in New York State, it's 50%. Okay. And that's all well and good. But say I get a license, not me personally, but uh, I'm a minority and I guess we are a minority. Uh, I get a license and I can't go to a bank because banking does not work with the cannabis industry. So right. where do I get the five to $10 million I really need if I'm opening uh, a retail operation or a cultivation facility? Because <laughs> you there's a lot of ex uh, expenses. So I have no choice but to go to hedge funds. And so private equity money is what right now is funding the cannabis space. It's not publicly traded. Uh, there are some uh, over-the-counter trading going on. There's one or two NASDAQ brands, but it's not really working well in that respect, regardless, because stocks are not performing, largely because everyone is waiting for federal legalization before they go all in. That's when... But do, you, the, the do whole... we need to have federal legalization? Well, you need federal legalization for, for a number of reasons. For expungement of uh, records on the federal level for people who've gone to jail for cannabis infractions, unless it's like for moving 100 pounds or something. But if, right. you know, you got it popped for, you know, an uh, a pound, an ounce, whatever, um, you get rid of that because that stands in the way of, you know, getting jobs. And the cannabis industry, ironic, a lot in some of the states does not allow people who have been in jail for cannabis to come into the industry. So that's why expungement is so important across the board. But it has to be, and, in, it has to be in, for federal for that to happen or? Well, right, well, each state can do that as they legalize within the state. But if you created a federal offense, like interstate commerce is a federal offense. Yes. And, you know, so the way the laws are set up right now, you cannot transport cannabis from Virginia to New Jersey because you're breaking the law. Um, carrying over state lines. Carrying over state lines. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens when New Jersey, when adult use in New Jersey happens at this point, maybe by May, Memorial Day. All the people from Manhattan are going to be taking the path train over and going back to the city you know and that's interstate commerce transportation of in, you know illegal substances are there going to be customs and narc people uh, i doubt it but it's going to happen and it, and just like in you know if you drive to massachusetts uh in the berkshires which is probably the closest uh where uh, legal legalization is allowed most of the parking lot is filled with New York and New Jersey plates, even with a user is 25% tax. And when you have a tax like that, that doesn't shut down the legacy market, it increases it. Right. Because right now the legacy market outgrosses the legal market by four, four to one. And look at the money that states and the government are leaving on the table that could take care of this infrastructure bill that Biden just passed, that could take care of a lot of things and, and at the same time chain by being giving back to the community so to speak eradicate that stigma that a lot of people still have about people who consume cannabis or yeah. who are in the industry okay you know we're not bootleggers anymore you know that's 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 gone and there's no more speakies it's, it's 
you know, uh, no gunning down people on the street. It doesn't, you know, that's yesterday. But in Humboldt County, they still got a problem in Northern California because well, I think uh, the, cart the, cart the cartels are, are, are a little pissed off that if this thing really happens, you know, they, they well, lose, so they're, they're going to lose a revenue stream, right? So one of the reasons the legacy of the legal umbrella is so important is if you look at California, they are the antithesis of that. They didn't embrace the legacy market. They went after the legacy market in, in a way with a lot of tax dollars being put towards that and not embracing them and, and extracting knowledge, experience, and give them opportunity to be part of the legal market uh, rather than sending in the state cops and the helicopters and all that kind of stuff. What a waste of time. Waste time, taxpayer dollars, and at the end of the day, the citizens lose out. Yeah, because- We do. We're not yeah, getting that money. Right, we're not getting that money. Now, let me, let me so, just uh, make a little bit of a transition here. Brought up the words loss already once. Um, are you still open to talking about loss in your life or not? Sure. No, of course. I think it's important uh, to talk about it, to educate people. And it's also therapeutic to talk about it. Okay. Um, you know, when people die before their time. Yeah. Well, I guess it's always their time whenever they die. But you know what I mean? Prematurely, let's put it that way. I'll go with and, that. And, uh, you know, I was lucky with my brother. He left a hell of a legacy for someone who died at 46. Um, my son, not necessarily so at 26, but... He made a hell of an impact on people. And you think about what could have been with both of them, you know, and I'm sure sibling, we all have siblings, uh, cousins, all that shit. Yeah. Somewhere along the way, someone's been impacted by the addiction thing or, or died by other cancer, whatever. And you can't help but wonder, you know, well, how, how, what would have been. So how, how did, how, how did you, as a parent, I can't imagine how how did you how did you get through that dark time? Well, you also well, ha, it depends how your child passes. Okay, if it's sudden, it's a shock. It's all you know. It, it, this was not shocking because my son was an addict, and when people are addicts, eventually they have two options. Either they go into recovery and stay in recovery, or they relapse and end up either in jail or dead. That's how black and white it is. Okay. Yeah. And um, so when you, I mean, when my son was in rehab, you know, not rehab, had been in treatment, let's put it that way, for 10 years from the time he was 16. So as parent, you know, first of all, you want to do what's best for your child. And knowing the substances he was using were, were not good this is, uh, for, for him on a lot of levels. And, you know, people talk about one of the things that always happens with, with cannabis is say, what about the kids? And you want to say, well, what about the kids in your house with your liquor and your, your own medicine that you have that kids, we know kids take. And they raid the liquor cabinets. We all did. So 
with him, you have to break through. You have to believe, first of all, that you want to get better. Okay. And I don't think he ever wanted to get better at the end of the day. You know, he enjoyed, I mean, he enjoyed himself when he was under the influence rather than dealing with life. I mean, we all self-medicate in certain ways, but, you know, it was a life, it was a learning tool. We went through a lot of parent therapy at these rehab centers because they recognize it's not just about the patient, that it's, it impacts the whole family and the bigger family beyond that. Um, especially if you want to create a supportive situation and acknowledge that it is a disease. So once you acknowledge it's a disease and not by choice, then your outlook changes. And just as I'm trying to change public opinion when it comes to cannabis, when it comes to addiction, I'm involved with a nonprofit called Shatterproof, totally focused on eradicating the stigma of addiction. And they work with companies and the insurance companies to provide resources to people who are who are addicts. And yeah. since we know there are no boundaries, it, it affects everybody. The fact that you get companies and insurance companies to buy in. Right. But now through Shadowproof and, and a lot of these programs they've developed in partnership with the insurance companies and companies, because they're both realized they're paying out more money to people uh, or losing more money if you're the company, you know, that you work at, unless you have programs that help people get straighten their lives out. Well, how, how, did, it, how did it impact your, your other kids? Um, well, impacted my youngest son, Alex, most of all. My older son, Andrew, by the time John was 16, he was already in college. So uh, I'm sure, and, and they weren't really close, but uh, it, it impacted Alex significantly because like all addicts they need people to lie for them uh-huh. and he was you know he worshiped his older brother so if your brother said r this didn't happen right you would say of happen. course it didn't happen right um i think my i mean it's something you never get over let's put it that way yeah uh every milestone anniversary family holidays all the things that you would all be a part of, the absence is is noticeable, doesn't recede as the years go on. Um, and, and the only way to deal with it really is therapy, number one. Okay. Um, and support, have a support group of people. You know, it's so amazing. And it's not unique to me. It happens to everybody. Whenever there's a passing, a mother, father, child, wife, whatever, you know, there's that period of time where people ask you how you're doing, da, 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 and then that stops. And then thankfully for social media, I guess, because I do post, as you know, a lot of stuff on social yeah, media, you... whenever, whenever it involves John's anniversary or a birthday, you know, you do get an outpouring of support. Once again, short-lived, but nevertheless, it, it, people don't normally think about it. But when you put it in front of them, of course, they're going to share your sorrow and, and give you comfort. So I think that's one of the benefits of, of social media, probably one of the few. But, it, you know, if it impacts not only the, my family, the extended family. If we let me and, just say something, let me just let me interject. I'm sorry I'm interrupting. Yeah. One of the things about social media is 
I think, and I'm not a big user of social media, as you know, and I mm-hmm. look to I look to you, I look to Mark, I look to other people, um, my kids, to to come to grips with how do I use this for good as opposed to evil. But I think it kept people really sane during the pandemic. Sure. Well, first of all, you connect when people, with people were in pain, like you're talking yeah. about the pain of a loss of a child, not right. that. Right. I think it's it, especially because in, in, during the height of the pandemic, we're not we weren't allowed to be together. Right. To share the morning. You know, that year I lost my both parents, father in January, my mom in December. And January was before the virus. By the way, I loved your parents very much. Thank you. I mean, and your parents, I we listen, it was that Patterson. Oh, they, everybody knew each other. They right. knew each other's families and all the, you know, the, the, whenever someone died. Oh, yeah, look who died. You know, so-and-so's cousin right. from this one and that one. So so when you look at losses, I mean, I, I, I only really look at it from personal perspective. Right. Um, business losses, you know, that that's not life. In, I mean, it is impactful to your life. Sure. In one respect, but... Um, it certainly doesn't carry the emotionality of personal loss. So yeah, do I like, you know, I, because of my, whether it's my personality or my, as I referenced earlier, my role I'm often placed in, you know, I've been fired a lot. I never take it personally, you know, because A, I have confidence in myself and I know I didn't do anything wrong and I know I can get another job. I mean, this is when I was younger, not now, but when we were younger. Um, and, and, and it was, I took it as, you know, the cost of doing business and, and my ex-wife would say, well, you know, why don't you, you know, a lot of people work in jobs for 25 years. I said, that will never be me that but much. That's, I not, that's not even today, but today people don't do that. I mean, if you're with no, the job, no. so, right. so you were, ahead actually, of, you were ahead of the curve. That's it. That's it. I kept going for the gold and I must say. And, and, you know, from all the people we know that we grew up with. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned Mark. He's had a great career. I've had probably the career of a lifetime in my mind. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, when you think about, I got my job through an employment agency, right? You I did? had to take a typing test and a stenography test. You know, the New York Times just have section nine with all the classifieds. And you yeah. go 42nd Street was all these employment agencies. I remember. And so I went in, I was home from my sister's graduation from high school. I wasn't even here to look for a job. I figured I might as well. So I go in the city, you know, I look and I see a couple jobs that look interesting, go to the agency, take the typing test, meet with the recruiter. I went, and this is, so I went to one and I went to another one. And the second one said, uh, looked at my resume, and said, oh, it looks like you have some entertainment experience. And I'm like, what do you mean? I didn't say that. Uh, I thought that. What do they mean? And I said, yeah, yeah. Because what it was as an intern, and this is why internships are very important, uh, one of the accounts the agency I was interning for handled was the Boston branch of the Jerry Lewis Telethon, okay. which no longer exists. And of course, as the intern, I had the night, the graveyard shift. But nevertheless, they this person, oh, you have a and, I, uh-huh. and he goes, well, we have an opening at two places right now that we're searching for. One is a major manufacturer of motion pictures, music, and uh, TV. And the other one is a publisher. I said, let's go with the first one. And they didn't give me the name of the company. 
they gave me the address. So I was not able to do any homework, which of course today would be suicide yeah. in any job interview. It was Columbia Pictures. And um, I remember. I, you know, the recruiter, the personnel guy, it's like, so what movies of ours have you seen? I, I'm like, I don't know. I don't look at the logos. Why don't you tell me which ones you've released? And I'll tell you if I saw them. And what did he say? Right? And he started going through a list. And I'm like, nope, nope, nope. Because this is where Columbia almost was bankrupt. And, and well, those were uh, the bagelman years, right? These are the bagelman years. And then it got the cl close encounters. And like, yeah, like uh, many times already. And you know, they asked me some other bullshit questions. And uh, he said, uh, okay, you know, you got to wait till they come into work. And they, they, the people in the publicity department don't come into about 10, 10 30. <laughs> I'm like, okay, great. So I go, but it know, makes I sense. Guess, it might have been out the night before. Out the night before, plus the three hour gap with LA. So, you know, you do work later hours. But, um, you know, I had all my interviews. First guy was the guy who ran the department, probably younger than you and I are right now. But, yeah. you know, what do you want to be in this cockpit business? You know, and, and I'm like, are you crazy? And he was telling me his stories. And then I got my portfolio that we, you know, we had to schlep around of what you did in your undergraduate years. And, uh, and he gets ready to pass me on to this person. I, I go, don't you want to see my portfolio? And he goes, yeah, we'll figure out what you know if we hire you. So okay. moves me down to the next person who's this very exotic, exotic African-American woman with a very sensuous voice. And she's on the phone and I'm looking on her bulletin board and I see, you know, home numbers of movie stars and shit. And, and she hangs up and her, uh, her first question is, what sign am I? You know, this is 78. So, you know, that stuff. And she goes, oh, I'm whatever. Those are compatible signs. And, you know, start talking. And then she lights up a cigarette. And I said, um, got an extra one? <laughs> Can you imagine doing that? You can't do that today anyway. But, and she gave me a cigarette and we were smoking and talking and um, I got passed on to the next person. And this is of course before cell phones. So by the time I get home, my mom says, oh, you got to call back Columbia Pictures. So I called them back and they made an offer. So uh, one day, one day of looking. I mean, I was looking before then, but I'm actually looking to have all this to happen. And, and then it took the clearly, you know, was the direction of my career. And so working in movies and then going to Rolling Stone and then going back to movies and then to Playboy and then back to Rolling Stone and Us Weekly and, um, and then going to Pecker and American you're, media. You're, you're, like, you're like the Billy Martin of uh, of media. <laughs> I don't I don't want to be fired. Billy Martin. Well, I and I'm probably argumented the same way Billy was as well. You're out. But what do you mean um, about? Yeah, I would. Yeah, I mean, I, if I worked for Steinbrenner, I'm sure we would have had some pretty big blowouts. Well, but, I think that uh, I think that his his persona had to be similar to the persona of the people that you were dealing with. Well, certainly he and David Pecker could be clones like Pecker and Trump were clones and Harvey Weinstein. They're all very did, did you ever, similar person. Did you know him? Did you know Weinstein? 
I, I, I knew him, but I really did not work for him. I turned oh. him down three times. Oh, he offered uh, you a job? I didn't want to work for him. I'd rather be, I said at one point, I'd rather be unemployed. You know? No and then, shit. Everybody, everybody I know who worked for him uh, was, bit, you know, chewed up and spit out and denigrated, embarrassed, humiliated, um, verbally that? abused. Well, yeah, well, some people do that in exchange for the perks of being at Miramax at those times or working for him and jumping on a jet to Cannes because he wants to go or whatever in exchange for being told, you know, because there's tons of people who work for those kind of figures. But then, you know, having knowing how to how to play to their... The, I call weaknesses. that the Delabate syndrome. Well, there you go. You know, uh, Although Howard has mellowed significantly. When I've heard I mean, him lately, I would have to say say that. Yeah. Yeah. I actually remember him from, to, were you ever in, because he went to BU as well. At yeah, the same I know, time I we did. Did you know him then? Yeah. Oh, you did? No, he was two years ahead. But I know he was on uh, WBUR, um, whatever the internal radio station to the dorms was called. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, I remember talking to the dean because I was on the Dean's Advisory Council as an alum. And, yeah. you know, Howard actually had complained that BU wasn't taking his money. And, and I said to the Dean, I said, is that true that you guys didn't, you know, because if you give a lot of money, you get an honorary uh, PhD or something. And they didn't think it was in the school's best interest. And I'm like, are you, fuck, are, are you crazy? Are you nuts? You have a, an alum with God knows how much money who, would probably be great tri uh, tribute to the school as him having been a graduate. The, mon the money, and, the money can change one life. You just save the universe. Do you know what I mean? You I know, mean, and, shame and, and on that. And he listened, and they came up with. I said, "Why don't you just give him an honorary degree now, without him giving you any money, and you'll get the money, and you'll and you you'll diffuse this." fight with him that he mentions on because he went had Jason Alexander on who also went to BU. Um, but, you know, there were a bunch of celebrities, Gina Davis, various celebrities who did go to BU. Sure. And he would never be an advocate for it. And they never invited him to talk at the school. I said, you, you know, you want, this is why I was on the Dean's Advisory Council, right? I said, you have access to the best PR minds. But no, I was, I, I mean, I, I didn't know Howard. I mean, I know people who did. So what really, the last question I have is what really counts? What really counts? You know what counts? You know, you mentioned earlier the uh, frequency of our interaction amongst our group, you know, like the the two years that umbrella, the Israel group, I guess for right. lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, and that connection even if you don't see people for eight years, 10 years, it don't, doesn't matter. You have this connection that overrides a lot of things. So without that, life is really lonely. So I'm very thankful that I still have, and it's you have to work at it. It doesn't just happen. Sure. You know, but that it seems a lot of our peers also are concerned about it. Otherwise it wouldn't exist. So I think that, that that would be pretty much on the top of the list. Okay. Uh, of, of what, what really, really matters. So friendships make friendships. Yeah. 
I mean, having, you know, kids in your life, without a doubt. Now, do you but, have grandchildren? You know, no, not yet. In order, I mean, I hope I do at some point. Yeah. But, uh, you know, who knows? But I have great nieces and that great nephews and all that kinds of stuff. Family, obviously, really matters. And my family, like your family, yeah, is a big family. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The immediate family is a big family. Not even the extended family, you know, right. when you just do with siblings and, and all that shit. You know, we would have Passovers or Thanksgivings with 40 people, and that was nothing. And now God knows what to them. One year, I remember we had someone we had to rent a place and because uh, we no one's house was big enough. So that those are those are nice problems to have, obviously. I think, you know, and, and confidence in yourself matters, trust in yourself, being true to yourself. Because at the end of the day, when you look in the mirror, you know, it's you, you, are you and, and nobody else. And, uh, you know, I think I, I you know, also I have had a really great life. And yeah. if I were something were to happen today, I think I've made a mark. Okay. Uh, uh, I've left a legacy. And I've had the opportunity to do things a lot of people dream about and and, you know even with the headaches and granted you know there's nothing without a headache i i really except for wishing to have my son back but aside from that you know there's nothing that i really would regret okay um and i think that's pretty amazing to be able to say because a lot of people you know you think of my way right regrets i've had a few um, I've been told from the last uh, podcast to stop singing, so I won't go there. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do consider myself very lucky in that respect that I, I think, you know, I've done as well as I could do. Uh, I, I've been, had a great ride. And well, I I've been very lucky. To... I've been very lucky to have a friend like you, truly. Well, thank you, Harlan. And I really, you know, look forward to what the future will bring. I don't think life ends at 65, clearly. No, it doesn't. We're not old men, to new 40, whatever you want to say. But uh, I, I hope to be active and um, approach life the same as I do now for quite a while, you know. And if my body participates or cooperates, rather. It, it will. Uh, so I, I want to thank you. For it. This has been engaging. Uh, I'll say it's been podcast gold. You know, it's, <laughs> it's been great. It's really been great. Uh, you know, no, I really wanted. Are. I really wanted to hear some stuff about the grotto, but you know, you weren't. You weren't giving that up. No, no, and, and you know, you, there's some things that are better left in people's minds than <laughs> let that than let that ruminate. Yes, exactly. So there you have it. A really fun, great conversation with my good friend, Stu Zakum. Publicist extraordinaire, communicator extraordinaire. That was a lot of fun. I hope you all enjoyed it. Keep listening.